0: Um, We're starting this morning a new uh, series, just a four-week series called Sent Together. We've subtitled it Living as a Community on Mission. So we're going to spend four weeks talking about two aspects of our identity as the redeemed people of God. Number one, as a community, but secondly, as a community on mission, that we just haven't, we haven't just been given a mission individually, but we've been given a mission corporately. And so, We're seeking to live out of that identity as a community on mission for the glory of God. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks uh, this week and next week on community and a couple of weeks on mission. Uh, There are at least four questions that I want us to wrestle with that will help to kind of guide our time together uh, in this series over the next four weeks the first question is, is this a biblical calling on my life? This is, a, is this a biblical calling on your life and my life? Do we really see this commanded of us in Scripture? This is foundational, right? Do we really see in Scripture an exhortation for Christ followers to pursue deep and meaningful relationships in the body of Christ, With one another? Or is there room in the Bible for the Lone Ranger Christian? Is there room in the Bible for us to be isolated and separated and individuals and separated from one another? Do we really find in Scripture a command to each and every one of us to be personally engaged in the Great Commission, the mission of making disciples of all nations? Or is there room in the Bible for me to just devote myself to my life and my job and my family and leave this great commission stuff to those whom we pay and support to do it? The missionaries, the pastors, and so forth. Or is there a calling from the Bible on my life? You see, if community and mission are in this book, if if that's an exhortation, a command on our life— then we've got no choice but to figure out what obedience looks like to those commands in the 21st century. So that's first and foremost. Second of all, what do we mean when we say community? What do we mean when we say uh, mission? Specifically with respect to community and mission in the 21st century. What What does this look like for us today? What we have here in the Bible is a portrait, a, a picture, if you will, of both community and mission that we'll unpack over the next four weeks. But it's a picture of community and mission in the first century. Well, we live in the 21st century. So how's it different? Culture has is different today than it was in the first century, to put it lightly. Times have changed. So how, how do we take First century pictures of community and mission and superimpose them on life in the 21st century. What does that picture look like for us? What does obedience to the calling on our lives to live as a community on mission, engaged in the Great Commission together, what does that look like for us in our everyday lives in the 21st century in America? What should that look like to us today? And then in light of that, the third question that we need to wrestle with is, are we obeying that? Whatever that picture is, whatever that portrait of of biblical community and biblical engagement with mission in the 21st century in America, whatever that looks like, whatever that ought to look like in our lives, do our lives match up to that? Right? Once we have the picture, then we've got to do some self-evaluation, And we've got to be honest with ourselves and see whether or not there is a gap that exists. And I think we should just go ahead and burst all of our bubbles here this morning and admit that none of us is going to match up very well to this biblical portrait that we have of biblical community and engagement in the Great Commission. Myself included, by the way, I don't preach this message or the, the messages in this series from a position of one who has this figured out. Please hear me in that. I, I, I preach this as a fellow journeyman on this path, on this pursuit of biblical community. And I have a lot to learn. And I have even more to apply to my life. I have, I have so much to, that needs to change about the way I pursue Community. A lot of this is stuff that that I know. A lot of this is stuff that you know. A lot of this won't won't be stuff that's revolutionary to you. This idea of pressing into community and engaging in mission together. Perhaps it is. But perhaps for you, most of what we're gonna cover over the next four weeks will be yes, I know that, but a gap exists right? A gap exists between what we see and what we, what we see ought to be true of our lives and what is true of our lives with respect to pressing in to biblical community and engaging in mission together. I have so much that I need to be challenged with in this, and so I hope that you will join me in this journey together as we seek to learn and apply these truths to our, to our lives. As with anything in the Christian life, Some of you are doing a lot better than I am in this. Some of you are doing a lot better than others in pursuing biblical community and engaging in the Great Commission. But this isn't about how each of us is doing individually. That's the wrong way for us to think about this. It has everything to do with how we're doing as a people, as a church. Because we're a team, or to use a biblical metaphor, we're a family we're, we're a family in this. And so how is our family doing with respect to pursuing biblical community and engaging in mission together? And I think we can all agree that there is a gap there. There is a gap that exists. And let's be honest and say it's not just a gap that exists between the church today and our experience as believers today. There's a gap that exists in our life at New Branch this expression of the body of Christ and what the Bible seems to speak about as what should be our pursuit of biblical community and our experience of biblical community and our engagement in mission together. And so we're, we're, we're together on this journey seeking to unpack this, understand this, see what gap exists, and then in light of that gap, whatever it is, the fourth question, what will we do to bridge that gap? What, we, what will we do? What will we change? What will we adjust about the rhythms of our life and how we live our life and perhaps even where we live our life and spend our time in order for us to be more faithful to pursuing biblical community and mission together? Now, the point here is not for us to just feel guilty about this. This is not about having a guilt trip. So many times when we talk about things like this, In the Bible, especially things that are hard, not hard for us to understand necessarily, but hard for us to apply. Our culture is so different. Our culture is so antithetical to some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about over these next four weeks. It's difficult. It's hard. It reveals some idols in our life. It reveals some priorities that might be out of whack, some things that we don't have in place. And a lot of times our reaction to that is is, this is just a big guilt trip. And, you know, one of the things about guilt trip is it's the only kind of trip that we never get anywhere with. We just feel bad, but nothing ever changes. Now, the reality is if the Holy Spirit brings conviction on us in some of these areas that we're going to be talking about, if the Holy Spirit brings conviction that we've sinfully avoided being faithful to pursue community, or we've sinfully been disobedient in seeking to fulfill the Great Commission, then we need to repent of that. We, we, we need to tell God we're sorry for that. And we know that that's not becoming of someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And we need to turn from that. And we need to trust in Jesus Christ, not just to forgive us, but to change us. That's how we apply the gospel to our lack of disobedience with respect to pursuing community and engaging in mission we trust in Jesus to not only forgive us but to change us and if there's if there if that's genuine repentance on our part if it's true biblical sorrow on our part that we're we're sorry we we want to be more engaged in community with one another we want to be more faithful in sharing the gospel with our neighbors and great commission, faithfulness, and obedience. We want that. And we're sorry that we haven't been. If that's genuine repentance and genuine biblical sorrow about those sorts of things, then we're going to want that change. And we're going to trust Jesus not just to forgive us for that, but to do the work on our heart that he needs to do to affect those kinds of real practical changes in our lives so that we are more faithful in these things. So, that we can live on community for the mission of God, for the glory of God. So, those are the four questions that we're gonna seek to answer in this series. Is this a biblical calling on our lives? And we'll go ahead and answer the question yes, it is a biblical calling on our lives, but we need to see it in Scripture, right? Because Scripture is the only thing that can bind our conscience as followers of Christ. Scripture is the thing that has authority over us, not a pastor. Scripture has authority over us. And so if Scripture tells us to do something, we've got no choice. We've got to figure out how to do it. Secondly, what is it? What is biblical community? What is mission? What is this biblical calling? What does it mean for the first century believers? What does it mean for 21st century believers in America today? Because that's who we are. That's where we are. Thirdly, are we obeying these commands? Is Is there a gap that exists? And fourthly, if there is a gap, then let's do something different. Let's change what we're doing. Let's, let's alter our MO so that we become more faithful in some of these things. And I don't know exactly what that's gonna look like, but as, that get, as, that, as, as we become aware of that gap that exists between our experience of, the, of community and mission and what ought to be our experience of community and mission, some things ought to change. And we need to press into that together. So here's the roadmap for where we're going over the next four weeks. This morning we're going to talk about a biblical portrait of community. What actually is community? Why is that so important? And what are some of the obstacles that keep us from that? What are some of the barriers that keep us from pursuing that together? Next week, we're going to see how the gospel intersects with community. As we dive into community together, and as life on life results in messiness because it does we're we're each of us we're a, we're a mess individually you get us together pursuing life together that just gets even more messy but as that messiness begins to unfold itself both in conflict and in offending one another and in experiencing disappointment and lack of l- lack of living up to expectations or or whatever it might be as sin gets exposed in us and in others, how do we apply the gospel in those situations? This isn't just about us having friends and watching football games together, although that's part of it, and we're going to do that. But how does the gospel interact, intersect with community such that we are changed through it? We are sharpened in our faith through this. Two weeks from now, a third part of this, we're going to reintroduce the concept of missions as we look at our identity as a sent people. We, we, we are a community, but we're a community that's been given a job, a mission, a goal. A commission has been placed on, not on us individually, but on us collectively. So, so how do we do that? And that's going to lead into the fourth week, which is how we do that together. How do we, sh- how, how do we consider the concept of a shared mission How do we seek to be faithful to the Great Commission together? Is there biblical argument for and are there practical benefits of seeking to do this together as the body of Christ? Why, Why do we see so often the New Testament church seeking to fulfill its mission together while today's church is seeking to fulfill its mission individually, apart from one another, in our own circles of influence? Not that that's necessarily bad, but is there a better way? Is there a way for us to focus our energies to seek to fulfill the Great Commission together? So this morning, I know it's a long introduction, but we're going to begin in Acts chapter 2 with a a portrait of biblical community. We're going to look at verses 42 through 47 this morning. It's going to be a bit different than our normal time on Sunday morning. It's going to be less expository. It's going to be more, more topical. So, you know, if that's, a, if that's a thing for you, just be forewarned. Uh, we're going to be in a few different places this morning, but this is going to be our launching point. But Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 is, as, as one person uh, remarked, it's, it's, it's pregnant with this idea of community. We see the early church in its formation leaning in on one another. And it's a snapshot of us trying to figure that out in the 21st century today. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures, verses 42 through 47 of Acts 2. Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' apostles. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. God, we thank you so much for this word. Would you send your Holy Spirit to help us see the principles here, to our life today, day after day? Would you speak into our hearts And show us, Father, where that gap exists between what we're called to and what we're living. Father, as you graciously remove the veil from perhaps idols that are preventing us from pursuing this, pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to lay those idols down and see you as greater, to see our corporate walk with you as our greatest delight, that we would treasure the expression of reflecting your glory in our community as more important than these other priorities that we give our lives to, whatever they are. Father, help us. This is hard. This is difficult. This is different. This is countercultural. So God, speak to us, encourage us through your spirit, and don't let up. And cause us to trust in you as we uh, attempt this, as we step out in faith, in and, and whatever ways that you've called each of us to do that, in whatever ways you've called our base groups to step out into this. Would you extend grace to us as we, as we try? Help us to lean on you for the strength to do that, the hope to do that, the security to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a snapshot of the early church, what they did, what was important to them, how they interacted with one another. And there is a lot here. We could spend an entire series unpacking the early church and and how they did church. But what I want us to see from this picture that we see in these few verses in Acts chapter 2 is their devotion to one another. Luke says that they devoted themselves to these things. And that, and that word is in the past tense, not, not because it was a one-time thing that they did in the past, but because Luke is talking about them in the past. The, the verb here is, is carries the connotation of ongoing action. This is something that they continued to do. This is something that continued to press into. This wasn't something that they gathered together and ceremoniously decided that they they will devote themselves to these things. No, they continued to do this day after day after day, pressing into this idea. They devoted themselves continually. They gave themselves to these things. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread— and to the prayers. The fact that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching mean, means that they studied the scriptures together. The, the, the word of God was formative for the early church. They depended on the word of God to shape them as a people, and so should it for us. This is why we we walk through passages of Scripture together on Sunday morning. This is why we study Scripture together systematically, verse by verse, because there is truth here that we absolutely need that is critical for us as the body of Christ. It forms us. It shapes us just like it did the early church. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, we broke some bread in our celebration of communion, but, but... I believe what he's talking about here is not so much the communion service, but is sharing meals together. It's just eating meals together. That, that there, was, there was enough one anotherness in them that they, they actually ate meals together. And he talks about it later in this passage as well. That they broke bread together in their homes. And they were devoted to the prayer. So they, so they prayed together. But but what I want us to focus on and look at is this word fellowship here in verse 42. This word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And the word koinonia, koinonia literally means that which is shared, or the partnership. That, that which is shared among us. That's the literal meaning of that word. Now, the word fellowship, which is in most of our English translations, the word fellowship, because of context and our culture and the way we use that word today, it's lost a lot of its association with the biblical word koinonia. Today, we talk about having fellowship with pretty much anything, right? Fellowship is hanging out. You know, we could, we could watch the football game together. and We're fellowshipping, right? We can eat, eat a snack together and we're fellowshipping, right? We have fried chicken. We're fellowshipping. And none of those things are bad. But that's not what is meant by this word. That's not a good definition for this biblical word koinonia. Those kinds of fellowship activities can be a means to pursuing koinonia, but it's not what koinonia stands for. When Dr. Luke tells us that they were devoted to the koinonia, he means that they were devoted to the idea of, of their new identity as a people who belong to one another. That's the idea. That they were devoted to the concept that they belonged to one another, that they had a share in one another. That there was a commonality among them and that they were devoted to that. In fact, the root word for koinonia is koinos which in the Greek we see two verses later in verse 44 when Luke says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, had all things in koinos. So there was a commonality among the early church, among the early believers in Christ. And that commonality was not due to shared physical attributes, but shared spiritual attributes and even shared familial attributes. Their very identity had changed. It had changed from distinct individuals to relatives who saw themselves as belonging to one another. It was a very real change that happened in who they saw themselves to be. Not not as individuals, but as relatives, as brothers. That's why we call them brothers and sisters who belong to one another. That's how they began to see themselves. I, I wonder... I wonder what impact it might have if we begin to see ourselves that way. You know, I wonder what would change. I wonder what impact that would have on our lives if we began to have the perspective that we belong to one another. That I have a share in you and you have a share in me that you have a responsibility for the person two rows back from you or down the row from you. You have a responsibility for your brothers and sisters in the same fellowship. And they have a responsibility for you. Why? Because they are part of this commonality called the body of Christ, the church that we share in common. I wonder what difference that kind of mindset might have on our pursuit of community. It certainly had an impact on the early church. It changed how they related to one another and how they interacted with one another. This passage talked about how they cared for one another. And when needs arose, they, they, they sold their possessions and they gave to those who were in need. Think about that. Somebody had a need, so they didn't just pray for them. They went and took their possessions and sold them on whatever was the first century eBay, and they gave them the money for that need. Wow. So they care for one another, and that care for one another was was manifested in sacrificing for one another and helping one another. This passage talks about how they worshiped together. They prayed together. And Luke says that they did this day by day not once a week day by day and apparently they evangelized together because it says that they were given favor with all the people not individually but corporately collectively they were given favor with all the people and he goes on to say that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved and why because they saw themselves as belonging to one another as having a share in one another And so we see this picture forming here of biblical community in the first century. That they were devoted to one another. That they saw themselves as belonging to one another. That that they had a love for one another that was manifested in their care and their concern and their sacrifice for one another. They clearly spent time together. They ate meals together regularly. They worshiped together, prayed together, they evangelized together. As Tyler taught us from Ephesians 4 a few weeks ago, they spoke the truth to one another in love. They sharpened one another in the faith. Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, they sharpened one another. They encouraged one another. They edified one another. They built one another up in the faith. This is our picture of biblical community In the first century. But I would submit to you that there's nothing about this picture that is culturally defined. There's nothing about this picture that's culturally defined. We just need to figure out how are we gonna do this given the obstacles that we have today. There are some things about our culture that make this hard, but there's nothing about the calling here that changes regardless if we're in the first century, fifth century, 15th century, or the 21st century. We just have to figure out what obedience means to us, to this calling. So before we move on from this picture that I would say is not just a picture of biblical, a calling to biblical community in the first century, but a calling to biblical community in the 21st century. Before we move on from this picture, this portrait, we've got to admit two things. One, by and large, this is not the picture of our experience of biblical community. Now, it might be the experience of some of you more than others, but again, it's not about our individual experiences of community as much as it is about our collective experience of community. And as we've said before, a gap exists for us, the body of Christ called New Branch. And for that reason, the second thing that we must admit is that this is ridiculously difficult. Can we just be honest about that? This is hard. This is countercultural. Why is it so hard? Well, the, the, the pathway, the pathway to biblical community is ridden with obstacles and barriers that try to keep us from going down that pathway. Remember, community is not a destination. It's a journey, and there's a lot of obstacles on that journey. There's a lot of things that try to defeat community. A lot of things about our culture. I I put on Facebook this week, our our church group, I put on there the question, what are are some obstacles to community that you can think of? What are some defeaters of community that you've experienced or seen? And there, there were some great responses. I want to share some of them with you. Many folks mentioned time and busyness. That's a reality, isn't it? Our culture is different from the first century in this way in particular. And and, and to be quite honest, it's part of what sets our culture in 21st century America apart from almost every other culture today around the globe. We're really busy. Our schedules are really, really full. But if this is a calling in our life, we've got to figure this out. And, 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 I, and I know it's a cliche, but it's so true that the way we spend our time reveals our priorities. If there's something that's supposed to be in our life or something that, that we say we want to be in our life, but it's not because we're so busy, because we're spending our time on other things, then whatever that thing is, whether it's community or working out or whatever— The reality is, it's just not that much of a priority for us. Because we all have 168 hours. We're all busy. We all have full schedules. We all have a, a, a lack of margin in our lives. But we all have, can we admit this? We all have enough time to do what God has called us to do. We just have to figure out how to do what God has called us to do. Myself included. Myself included here. Other folks mentioned a lot of things about themselves that make it, make it difficult to, to press into community. Someone said introversion. In fact, they said being around groups of people is exhausting. All right? Any other introverts in here? You're not going to raise your hand like me, right? I find this to be the case too. You know, but, but God doesn't call just extroverts to community. So fellow introverts, we've got to figure it out. We gotta overcome that. We gotta press through that. Fear of acceptance, fear of shame, fear of comparison. One person said, feeling that I will be judged by the group for not living up to their expectations. Isn't that heartbreaking? That that would be the experience of some. Let's be honest and and realize that when sinners gather together, sparks are gonna fly. When people who are a mess gather together, there's gonna to be a bigger mess. And you might experience some of this. Please don't let that experience or a past experience prevent you from engaging in what God is calling you to engage in. We don't have any choice. We're called to obedience. And we've got to press through that. And by the way, in our base groups, which is our primary vehicle for driving down this road towards community, in our base groups, we've got to be vigilant that those are safe places, that they are not Places of judgment. And if you sense a, a spirit of judgment in your own heart, please swallow that. Take that to the Lord. And don't let that come out in a base group. Because it does do damage. And it becomes an obstacle to somebody pursuing what we're called to pursue. But at the end of the day, it can't be an excuse. Fear of conflict. Man, that's a, that's a reality. Conflict might happen. Eventually, somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get offended. Again, when, 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 when iron sharpens iron, sparks fly, right? There's heat there. And we've got to work through that. That's part of what we're going to talk about next week. How do we apply the gospel in those situations? How do we walk through that? Because we have to. Other people mentioned some practical things like concerns for child care. Listen, we've got kids. What are we going to do with them? We have to figure that out. Sit down with your base group leader and say, Pastor Ken said, I I have to pursue community. I got kids. What are we going to do, right? We have to figure that That can't be an excuse. Let's figure that out together. Self-centeredness, grinding my own agenda. Somebody said um, an obstacle might be overthinking community that if we make community out to be this big event or project that we have to plan and, 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 and coordinate and do all this stuff for, that potentially can just become an excuse to not do it, right? Because who wants to do that planning? Who wants to do that coordinating? Instead of just thinking of community, perhaps as just sharing a meal together, just doing the things that you might normally do alone and inviting a brother or sister to do it with you. And allow that one anotherness to begin to happen. Somebody else mentioned being overextended in multiple friend networks. This is a reality, right? I've got my friends at church. I've got my friends at school. I've got my friends at work. I've got my friends through my kids' little league. I've got my friends through the dance stuff that my daughter does. And what happens is this idea of community is spread out couple of miles wide but just an inch deep and perhaps it's not as deep as it could be or should be and if it were focused on the body of Christ that we have this commonality in the church with so we might be spread out too far other people mentioned this the culture that we live in the American culture Drifts, I would, I, would, I would say it's not a drift. It's, it's a strong current towards isolation and independence. And we just have to realize that's the water that we're swimming in. And so we have to be deliberate and intentional to stand against that current or else we'll get swept downstream. And we will find ourselves isolated and independent of one another. Somebody else mentioned just my spiritual condition. When I'm spiritually dry, I really don't care about community. And that's true. That's when we need to press into it. We need to realize that. We need to realize that times of spiritual dryness are going to make us think that we don't need one another, which is a false illusion. Somebody else mentioned that what could be an obstacle is the fact that I've tried so many times and failed. Have you ever been called to do something? You know something should be true, and you try it. You attempt it, and you fail. And then you try again, and then you fail. And then you try again, and then you fail. What happens over time? You stop trying, don't you? And, and that, that was the experience for, for, for one person, or at least the temptation, to stop trying. Because I've tried so many times. I've pressed into this so many times. And It doesn't seem to work, and and we keep hitting roadblocks, and we keep failing, they were saying, in in their own experience. The temptation is, well, then stop trying. If that's a reality for you, press through that. And we're going to talk about the whys here. The whys are going to fuel our perseverance in pressing into community. Somebody else mentioned geography. Geography that we live so far apart, that's certainly different from the first century. They live close to one another. We live spread out. We live farther apart. And perhaps this has to do with time because that's really what that's about. It's about time. Because if I'm driving 30 minutes to have community, 30 minutes there and 30 minutes back, then perhaps... That's going to become an excuse or a reason, an obstacle to me not engaging in community. Maybe I need to really consider how do I engage in community with those people who live closer to me. Maybe that's part of the answer. But the reality is all of these, and we could go on, right? We, We could continue to list them. We could have a town hall meeting. You could continue to tell me all of the obstacles that stand in the way of biblical community, and they're all very real, and they are all potential defeaters of biblical community, and so the reality is that this path that we're on, this journey that we're on is difficult. It's really hard, so what's going to keep us pressing on? What's going to keep us on that road, on that path towards biblical community well, that's a great question. What, what about the early church? What, what kept them in the game? What, what kept them pressing on? What was their why? I want, I want to talk about five whys in the remainder of our time together this morning. Five whys that will keep us on this road. And, and by the way, when we think about the first century, a lot of times, and I've done this, we like to excuse ourselves by pointing to the first century culture and noting that it was a communal culture, right? That this was easier for them because living in community was something that was normal for them. It's how they lived anyway, and certainly that's true. Theirs was a more communal culture than ours is today. But you, you know what wasn't normal for the first century culture? Living in community around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That actually got you persecuted. And in some cases, it got you killed. You see, at the end of the day, community, at its most foundational level, is loving one another. And what did Jesus say? They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So if you're in the first century and you're trying to, you're trying to keep your faith a secret because of the danger of persecution, then pressing into community had a much higher price for you and came at a much greater sacrifice than it does for us today. So we don't get a pass just because the first century culture was more communal because it was also a lot more hostile to the gospel than ours is today. Our culture might have some things that make pursuing community difficult. It certainly does, but I don't think it, that means that it was any easier for the first century church. So what kept the early church pressing into community? Five whys. First of all, and this is one we've already mentioned a little bit, they would press into this in order to live out their new identity as a people that belonged to one another. The early church pursued loving one another, caring for one another, sacrificing for one another because of their new identity as a people who belong to one another. So there's a principle here, and that is that community is not as much about what we do as it is about who we are. Now certainly there are things that we need to do. There are activities that we need to consider engaging in. There are things that we need to change about how we live if we're going to pursue biblical community. And those things are the what of community. But part of the why begins with this idea of living out of our new identity. Knowing who you are shapes to, helps to shape how you live. Right. This is, this is what we tell our kids we, 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 say, we say, remember who you are. You know, the, the other day, our kids were leaving for a, for a college visit, overnight college visit, visit, and they laugh at me, but I said, remember you're a rucker. Why do I say that? Well, because hopefully that we've instilled into them what it means to be a rucker, that you live a certain way, that that helps to shape your life and who you are. Well, what is our identity? In Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the identity of those who have been redeemed from the pit. And there's nothing about that identity that is individual. It's collective. It's corporate. We are a community. We're, we're a family. And so the exhortation then is live like it. Live out of that new identity that you have in Christ. Secondly, second why here is to reflect the glory of God. Our God is a three-in-one God. We affirm the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all co-equal in divinity and power and significance, but unique in their role and responsibility within the Trinity. And so our triune God is a community in himself for all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect love and perfect fellowship, koinonia, within the community of the Trinity. And guess whose image we've been made in? His. What did did God say to himself back in Genesis before he created Adam? He said, God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Father, Son, Son. Holy Spirit, and all that that means, we have been created in community to reflect the glory of our triune God. Now we mess that up, right? Because Genesis 2 is followed by Genesis 3. We mess that up with our sin, as we always do. And what resulted from that sin, from the fall? Isolation, independence, fig leaves, right? Hiding. Hiding from God, hiding from one another. And so the community in which we were created to reflect the glory of God was irreparably marred by the stain of our own sin. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the bad news. The good news is that God made a way for us to be restored from the hopeless condition of our lostness that sin had left us in And this rescue that that he achieved for us came through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to redeem us back to himself. And so if we profess faith in Jesus Christ, not only are we saved from the penalty of our sin, not only are we given the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account such that we are justified before God, but also... The image of God in which we were created, which which was irreparably stained by our sin, was now restored back to the image of God in which we were originally created to reflect. We reflect the glory of God best when we are in unity in one another in the body of Christ. When we are together, when we are unified, when we act like we're a family, when we live like we belong to one another, because then we look most like him. Third why here, and this is a pretty basic one, but we we shouldn't avoid it, and that is to obey the one another's of scripture. There are 59 one another commands in scripture. And we simply can't obey them all here on Sunday morning, can we? Fifteen of those commands say love one another. Fifteen different times, that's the ex- exhortation, love one another. But we know love is more than an emotional feeling, it's action. How did God show his love for us? How was his love for us manifested? It's by sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ. Becoming to seek and to serve those who were lost. And our love for one another that is to be characteristic of followers of Christ, our love for one another must be manifested in our sacrifice and our concern, our care to one another. And how much of that can you really do on Sunday morning? And for that matter, how much of that can you do during an hour and a half when your base group gathers weekly? This requires time together to do them. There are lots of other ones. Be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, stop passing judgment on one another, accept one another, instruct one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's just out of Romans. That's just out of the uh, from Romans 12 to 16 that we're going to unpack in the next few months. By the way, that greet one another with a holy kiss is is said four times in the New Testament. Four, t- four different times we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. So this is going to get interesting as we press into community with one another. But we're told to serve one another. We're told to carry each other's burdens. How can we do that unless we're together, right? I can't carry your burdens if I don't even know what they are. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. I gotta be close enough for you to offend me if I'm gonna forgive you, right? Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another. Offer hospitality to one another, and I love how he adds on there, without grumbling, right? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The point is, those are commands. Those are all imperative verbs. And, 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 and it is the word of God alone that has the authority to make such a command on our life, to bind our conscience in that way. So we've got no choice. We've got to figure out how to be obedient to these commands. As a follower of Christ, these commands have authority over us to compel us to live a certain way. The question is, are we? Are you? This why is an unavoidable why. Why keep pursuing biblical community? At its most funda- fundamental level, because God says so, right? Number four, a fourth why. It is to continue the process of our own sanctification. These were all baby Christians in the early church, because the early church was early, right? They were, they were all young in the faith. They were all new. And, and, and just like all of us, they needed to grow in their faith. They needed to mature in their walk with Jesus. There were no seminaries, though. There were no Bible colleges, there was no desiringgod.org, any of that. Instead, they had to rely on the Word, which is, why, which is why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But they also had to rely on one another to, to press the Word and to press the gospel into one another's lives. So that the rough edges of life would be, would be smoothed out with the application of the gospel to a clean, sharp edge through the application of gospel truth. This is is why Paul exhorted them in Ephesians chapter 4 to speak the truth in love to one another. Why? So that we will grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we're on this process of sanctification. We're on this process of being transformed, as we talked about last week in Romans 12.1, being transformed from the inside out to become holy in a practical sense. That's what the word sanctification means, to the process of becoming practically holy. We're all in this process together, but we need to make sure that we're in this process together, that we're encouraging one another to grow in holiness. And then fifthly, and finally, the fifth why here is to do mission together. And this is really where we're headed in this series, but I want you to see the connection here. The early church was given a mission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And the way he put it in Acts, he says, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but to the remotest parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. That was the mission that was was given to 120 disciples in Jerusalem when Jesus ascended to heaven. And all they had at that point was the Holy Spirit at Pentecost a few weeks later, the Word of God, and each other. That's all they had. Imagine you were part of that group. This big, audacious, great commission is laid on you and 119 of your closest friends. How are you going to seek to begin fulfilling that mission? Imagine if after receiving this great commission, the the disciples sat down and said, okay, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to gather once a week, and we're going to have a service, okay? And then after the service, we're going to go home, and then next week, we're going to come back and do it again, okay? How silly. That's not going to help them fulfill the Great Commission. That's a good start, but that can't be the end of it. But for so many of us, that is, the, we, we tag on, you know, an hour and a half in, in, in base group, maybe, as as if that's going to cause us to fulfill the Great Commission. It's got to be so much more than that, so much more inclusive than that. That's not what we would do. You know what we would do? We would devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the koinonia, This this ideal of belonging to one another. We would press into that. We would give ourselves over to that on a continual basis and to the breaking of bread with one another and praying with one another. We would realize how deeply we needed one another if we had any hope of accomplishing this great mission that had been given to us. And it's no different today. We've been given the great, same great mission and we've been left with the same three things Holy Spirit, Word of God, and one another. And the calling and importance of the Great Commission, this audacious, seemingly impossible task of making disciples of all nations, this ought to compel us to pursue community. Because our only hope of accomplishing the Great Commission is if we do it together. So how do we do that? Stay tuned to weeks three and four. But the reality is, if we don't pursue community, then what's at stake is the accomplishment of the Great Commission. If we don't pursue community, what we need to see is that that, that's saying, in effect, how much we really care about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So look at those whys. These are the the whys, the fuel that's going to keep us in the game. To live out our new identity, to reflect the glory of God, to obey the one another's, to continue the process of our own sanctification, to do mission together. When community gets hard, when it begins to grind against our flesh, when it seems as though there's more reasons not to pursue it than to pursue it, we gotta go back to these whys. Yes, community is hard. I'm I'm not glossing over that. It's hard, it's messy, it's uncomfortable, it's risky, it's scary. And yes, it requires sacrifice and a reordering of our lives. But in light of these whys, we've got no choice but to press on. We, we, We must press on in light of who we are as the body of Christ belonging to one another, having a share in one another, in this commonality that we share in the body of Christ. We must live out of that new identity instead of living contradictory to that identity. We must reflect the glory of God. We want to reflect the glory of our three-in-one triune God and his divine community that he represents we must obey the one and others. We've got no choice. We must keep growing in our own sanctification that requires the, the, the grind of community to sharpen us and to hone us into the people that God is shaping us to be. And we must, we, we must accomplish this mission that God has given to us, this great commission of making disciples of all nations. We've we've got no choice. We've got to press into that. And if we're a follower of Christ, that's what we want. He's recreated us to be fishers of men, right? But we can't do this individually. We've got to do this together. And so we press on. We press on. We face obstacles, but they're not walls. They're just hurdles that we have to figure out how to get over, and we get over them by going back to the wise. What's at stake here? Our identity, the glory of God, our obedience to the one another's, our sanctification, and the very mission of God that He's given to the church. I want to encourage you as we close this morning that community, again, it's not it's not a destination. It's not something that we're going to have a four-week series on and talk about in our base groups and then, hey, we, we, we're there. We've arrived at biblical community. It's a journey. It's a pathway. And I want to encourage each of us, each of us, to be ready to extend grace to one another as we, as we attempt to take a few more steps down that road, to be more faithful in this. Because it's different, it's hard, it's countercultural, all of that. And we're all going to try. And guess what? We're all going to fail at times. Let's extend grace to one another. Let's, let's, let's provide ample time for us to wrestle with this and figure out obedience in our own base groups and start walking down this road. But let's be gracious as we do so. Let's be patient as we do so. But let's do it. Let's do it for the glory of God, our own sanctification, and for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let's pray.